Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon Burkhead. I've been studying virtual reality within healthcare since 2016. This podcast series is for all those interested in the intersection between immersive technology and mental health. Today, we're going to talk about phobias, anxiety in specific situations which are avoided, leading to significant changes in quality of life for the patient. We're going to have a guest who's been treating patients with virtual reality for almost 20 years, Les Posen. Our objectives are to learn the phobias, what is the non-drug related treatment of those phobias, and then the virtual reality therapy for those diseases. There are three different phobic anxiety disorders. The first one is agoraphobia, which is characterized by a fear of situations in which fleeing or help is not easily accessible, such as in crowded places, leaving home, entering shops, or traveling alone in a train, bus, or plane. This may or may not be with panic disorder. The next one will be specific phobias. These are around either a particular object or an environment and are broken down into several categories. The first will be animals, things like spiders, insects, dogs. The next category would be situational, which would be flying or an elevator. Third category would be medical procedures, things like injections or dental procedures. A fourth category would be environment related, so heights or water related environments, also storms. There are several others such as clowns for children, loud places. The last one is social anxiety disorder. It is characterized by excessive fear of scrutiny, embarrassment, humiliation in social or performing situations leading to significant distress. The first line treatment consists of exposure therapy. During exposure therapy, patients confront feared external or internal stimulus until the distress has decreased. They're also advised to not use cognitive or behavioral avoidance strategies. Therapy can be done in two ways. One is imagination or in real life, also called in vivo exposure. There are other disorders outside of phobias that do exposure therapy, but they are treated differently as they include confronting internal stimuluses, such as with panic disorders, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD. Outside of the anxiety disorders, there are other diseases as well, obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorder, and substance addiction. The gold standard for treatment is in vivo or real life exposure. Actually having that animal or that social situation or that claustrophobic situation for agoraphobia and to go through a process of habituation, extinction, correction of negative beliefs and emotional processing of those stimuli. The purpose of these therapies is to help with fear toleration, developing non-threatening associations. Of note, exposure is often combined with cognitive behavioral therapy interventions such as psychoeducation and, and cognitive interventions. Despite the evidence behind these, it can be challenging to do in vivo exposure therapy because it may be challenging to leave your office to go to a different facility, to go to a tower for heights, or to go to an airline. And patients Patients may have high rates of dropout because of their concern around that stimulus. This is where virtual reality can come in. 
With VR, you're able to remove the time it takes to drive to certain stimuli. You're able to decrease the cost of a real life exposure and also having to even keep animals potentially that would be an exposure for the patient. Also with VR, you're able to adapt the stimulus, either by changing the object that they're seeing, changing the, the intensity of the environment, the amount of stimulus, the duration of time in which they're going to see the stimulus, the repetition of actions that are done in the exposure. You can also change the context in which the exposure is given. You can also make the exposure much larger than it might be in real life, say for a spider. Thankfully, was able to have an interview with a colleague who is an expert in treating patients with VR for phobias, particularly fear of flying. I had a great conversation with Les Posen in Australia. He has been doing this treatment for a very long time, decades, and has a lot of great insights from his practice. So we'll cut here to the conversation I had with him, and then we'll come back to give a, a wrap up of where we were, where we are, and, and potentially what's coming. Tell us a little bit about your specific use of VR, how you treat patients with phobias using it. I've been using VR in various formats and from various providers of clinical environments for the last 20 years. In 2001 was my first purchase of VR equipment. I'd known about it for quite some time and I'd known about it clinically for some time, but the first opportunity I had to make a, a clinical purchase was 2001. And the environments at the time were exclusively to do with anxiety, in particular phobias. And so the company that I first bought my VR system, came from Georgia, virtually better, and they'd received a very large grant to do PTSD research for Vietnam vets. And then there was this sort of spin-off into more commercially oriented VR, principally fear of flying, which was my main interest at the time, but also heights and other places with areas where you didn't really need terrific graphics. You couldn't put people in because at that time, 20 years ago, you really didn't want to put people in because the avatars were so poorly described, shall we say. It would actually decrease the sense of immersion because it was just so bad. That's where it started for me with these environments where there was a commercial output or commercial use. And it was basically a doable thing with the technology that existed at the time. Now, I will say that at the time, the Virtually Better group would sell what would, what we would call a turnkey system. We, they sold you a, an AV receiver, a Dell computer, a Pentium 3 chip, by the way, and they would sell you what's called a VFX headset, which was a gaming headset at the time. And they would FedEx it to you and then a member of the crew would actually fly in and sit with you, assemble it all, and take you through a couple of hours of training so that you could learn how to use the system, troubleshoot it, and so forth. So that was a complete turnkey system. The whole system in 2001 dollars was 5,000 US dollars to buy the whole thing. And then you paid 600 US a month to basically, you didn't own the software, you leased it. I couldn't do that because they're not going to fly to Australia. I had to basically source everything locally, including the headset, which at the time was $3,000 Australian to buy the headset from a gaming platform. I had to fly to Sydney to get it. And then I had to source everything else, all the other equipment, and then setting it up. And of course, since that time, I've been to modify, rather than just using your average kitchen chair as the chair, I use my connections in the airline business to actually get some airline seats. And then I hooked them up to a, a plinth base that could actually rotate 
on its platform and, and tilt a little bit. And then underneath it, there was some what are called Aura, A-U-R-A, bass shaker speakers that stick to the bottom and they vibrate. And by tuning in the bass of the AV amplifier, you could actually give it a bit more bass and the thing would vibrate. And interesting enough, you only had to tilt the plinth on its bass just a few inches, a few moments, and it, it was sufficient to trick the, pa the patient into believing that the plane was in motion and it was rumbling along, that it, there was a certain degree of verisimilitude between what they were experiencing and what they knew they ought to be experiencing the real McCoy. And once the brain makes that connection, you've got some very nice things that start to happen. Not, not perfect verisimilitude because you're not going to get it. We're talking sufficient to get the amygdala to say, hold on a second, let me have another think about this. This looks like it, sounds like it, feels like it must be. In other words, our, our little limbic system joins up the dots really quickly. And that's what I was aiming for in my setup, to be able to get those dots joined really quickly. I love the hardware that you have and working with. It's amazing. As we move forward, I'm also curious about your control panel one could consider manipulating in a session. Can you give me just a little bit on the different things you do manipulate? It depends on the environment. And certainly one of the, the reasons for choosing brand A over brand B of, of clinical software is my ability to manipulate the variables. One part is how much verisimilitude is there between what the environment throws up and what I know the patient will be experiencing in a real flight. You want some minimal level of verisimilitude. It doesn't have to be, as we said, it doesn't have to be brilliant. It just has to be good enough. And then after that is the operational features. What can I manipulate at a moment's notice to change things at will if I want to, or do I have to shut the system down, reboot, and then now the person is back in the environment in the way I want? Can I actually change things on the fly? And so that's one of the reasons to choose one software over another, because you can manipulate the variables at will rather than having to reboot. And of course, every time you do that, the patient loses emotion, you're going to start all over again. That's the sort of things that, that my experience teaches me to teach others to look for. So it might have very nice face validity, it's got all these features, but if you can't manipulate the variables in a way that keeps your patient immersed in the environment, then what's the point? When you're working these last 20 years, are there certain patients that you think are a better fit for VR versus imagination-based or maybe not such a good fit? Maybe that relates to VR side effects. So if I'm contemplating, we're now ready to move to the VR. We've done enough backgrounding, assessment, psychoeducational materials, and so neuroscience education, so forth and so on. And we've explained, for instance, why we're doing exposure-based work and that VR is not the therapy. VR is simply a means to engage in exposure when it's not that easy to go out to the airport or find an elevator or whatever it might be in a controlled way. One lays out the, the reasoning behind using VR. We want to get away from something I call technological determinism, which means because we have the technology, we must use it. Especially as a, a psychologist or psychiatrist who's invested 10 grand and hundreds of hours feels I must use it because I need a return on my investment. But that's to be therapist-centered intervention, not patient-centered intervention. One of the things always might be, I'll talk about motion sickness to get motion sickness on the plane, in elevators, in cars, because that will clue you in to what might be acceptable in, in the VR environment. And we know that's going to induce a really uncomfortable set of sensations, but some people tolerate it better and others can't tolerate it at all, and they've just got to rip their headset off. So I do a few little pretests nowadays, especially with kids, by the way. I'll take some off-the-shelf experiences, not games, experiences in VR, where the child or the young adult can actually take one of the controllers and actually manipulate what's going on and move around, just to see how they accommodate to the VR experience. You want them to have a nice relationship to VR because it's fun. And I want them to come back and say to mum, can we come back next week? Because it was so much fun at Les's place. So I want that in a young child.
This leads me a bit to the future or the present. It's mostly with therapists in the room, but with the evolution of standalone headsets, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on using VR where they can have VR with someone remote? Well, I've already done it, Brandon. I've got patients around the world who've got Oculus Go's and Quest's and the software that I've been using, both the one from France and one from Spain, both have an option to do it by telehealth. And what the person does is they download the app, they log in, there's a four-letter code. They give me that four-letter code. And here in Melbourne, I put that code into the software and I can see what they're saying. As long as they've got the hardware, we can do it as if they're in the room with me. That's where things have been heading. I would imagine on the spectrum of immersion that let's say you have a patient who's treatment resistant has already gotten imagination-based CBT exposure therapy and they, they come to you, let's say their second attempt or third attempt, that these higher end systems with people that are highly resistant? Brief answer, anecdotally speaking, is yes, because there are clearly some people for whom imaginal work is not going to cut through. They will not allow themselves to experience it fully in the way that the therapy is intended to do to get that habituation going. With VR, of course, you can close your eyes and shut down what you're seeing, but you can't shut down what you're hearing, and you certainly can't shut down the tactile elements, which is why you want that little bit of vibration, a little bit of movement to trick the brain into believing, oh, join up the dots real quick. People can look away, they don't look out the window, they can even close their eyes, but they are still exposed. Whereas with imaginal exposure, you've got no control over what they're, you have to rely on their self-report. There was some more recent studies, self-administered phobia treatments on mobile phone apps. So there was that study out yep. in Europe yep. for fear of falling. I want to get your thoughts on self-administered. If it's that you think entry-level patient downloads an app from their phone and we have entry-level treatment at home. I think it's the other way around, Brandon. I think it's better if people come in and get an initial assessment so they know what the homework task and then they can start to use the apps, not the other way around. All right, we are back. Whenever I get a chance to talk to someone who's been doing this for 20 years, it's fantastic. You get to learn about many of the challenges that you'll face they figured out how do we best approach VR side effects. Les has a great method that he has incorporated into his practice and also how he approaches the patients in the first couple sessions. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I want to end this episode talking about the past, the present, and the future. So the past goes back to what Les was talking about in the first question, which was how did this field evolve? Why is it that phobias were the first treatments to be studied and published about with VR. It's due to the technical limitations. If you have a pixelated spider or pixelated environment, someone who's highly sensitive to that object, that stimulus, is those that are gonna benefit from that situation. If you have a virtual human and it looks like essentially a box, you may not be able to elicit the same response. They need to have some ability to resemble enough to engage in that type of dialogue or that type of situation. That's likely why we've seen phobias as an early treatment. What I wanna talk about now in what is the present that we're in with VR therapies is a fantastic paper that I'll have in the show notes that did a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing VR therapy to in vivo real life exposure and actually requiring that the VR exposure is equal in time to the real exposure, the control group. I would say the, the weakness of the study, one of them is that when you have this type of restriction, even though it's looking at studies from the year 2000 to 2016, there's only nine studies and with only 300 and 71 patients. So there's a limitation there on what we can really say is the conclusion. But overall, 
the VR therapy was not statistically significantly less efficacious as exposure, particularly for the specific phobias and agoraphobia. It means that A, there was not a superiority to VR therapy. There was not a statistically significant superiority to real exposure. With more studies, we'll hopefully get the final answer on whether it's inferior or superior or equivalent. I think that equivalency is a good goal for the field because the benefits that you get for this are convenience, not having to leave your office, being able to do an exposure multiple times versus flying on a plane five times. You can't do that in one therapeutic session. You can do that with a VR session. So I think that's part of it. I think that that convenience factor or really the efficiency of VR is what the advantage it brings. What you don't want to see is that it would be inferior. And if it's inferior, where is it inferior? So with the third disease, which was social anxiety disorder, I agree with the authors that the reason why the real exposure was statistically significantly superior was because when you make the comparison of what was done at that time, you're essentially looking at, again, either boxy characters, very limited interactions with these virtual characters. The goal should be what is done in real life should be replicated as close as possible within the VR intervention. Just to recap my takeaways from the paper, the goal for the field should be equivalence to gold standard. And how to be equivalent is to ensure that the VR intervention is providing whatever it can to be as similar in the treatment modality in real life, whether that be adding cognitive interventions, adding some type of social interaction, adjusting the amount of stimulus or the variety of stimulus that you're providing. Now let's talk about the future. One thing that we brought up is what we would call synchronous therapy directed with a therapist during a therapeutic session. The pandemic has changed mental health. It's changed healthcare broadly. Everything is now moving towards telemedicine. There are things that will not go back. We will likely continue to have quite a bit of remote therapy moving forward. Les talks about an ability to screencast. So using a program over the internet to be able to see the view of a patient's VR headset from the therapist's computer. I think that's a great use case to be able to do VR therapy remotely. The next level of that, and we'll talk about this in another episode, we'll be using social VR platforms, which are being created by startups, to engage in a therapeutic conversation where the therapist is actually in the virtual environment with the patient, not in the same room. Lots of interesting questions we'll bring up in that episode about the therapeutic alliance, what can be done, what can't be done as of today, but also what's the future. So that is the synchronous forms of therapy. The other question that I ended with was talking about self-guided, self-administered therapy. So these are automated programs that patients can use as an app. I'll have two different papers in the show notes. These both showed efficacious outcomes when you compare to a control. The first self-administered virtual reality treatment for phobias that I could find was from Dr. Daniel Freeman over in the UK. That's a name that I'll probably touch on a few different episodes as he's one of the big leaders within the field of virtual reality treatments within mental health. And in this paper, it's a single blind parallel group randomized control trial where 
they recruited adults that had diagnosis of fear of heights and were randomly allocated to either virtual reality that was done six 30-minute sessions administered two to three times a week over a two-week period or just usual care. They were stratified by severity of fear of heights. The research teams were unaware of the allocation and administered three fear of height assessments, one at baseline, at end of week two, and at follow-up. They found a statistically significant reduction in stress related to fear of heights, and those were maintained at the follow-up period of four weeks. This was done with actually in-person virtual reality because it was in 2017. At the time, we just had HTC Vives and it was a really well done program now with several headsets that it can go into the patient's home they can redo the study remotely completely automated with patients in their own home i'm looking forward to an update to that the next paper actually was done around the same time in the netherlands and it was again for fear of heights they did it with low-cost cardboard headsets they're so cheap essentially twenty dollars plus your smartphone. They had over 193 participants having acrophobia. This was randomized with weightless control. They did seven modules over a three-week period and a three-month follow-up. The intention to treat analysis showed significant reductions in our symptoms, and at three months, it was sustained. The number needed to treat in this study was 1.7. For every, let's just round up, let's say the number needed to treat was two. For every two patients, you have an additional patient who had benefited who otherwise would not. That's an extremely good number needed to treat. So the closer you are to one, the better. The only challenge really with these home-based treatments, which we see also in other areas, is the attrition rate, the drop of patients. In the pre-treatment setting, you can lose 20% of patients. It's why in all of my studies that I've done, I've always been a major proponent of doing some type of screener week to assess that engagement that you need for a study. And then about 77% finished the study. 24 participants reported one or more transient cyber sickness effects. This would be essentially an episode of nausea for a couple minutes. Then you take the headset off and it's gone. Usually this is in the first session. I'll have links to these in the show notes. Not only could it help potentially decrease the number of appointments that you may have with the provider, thus allowing them to treat more patients, but even for the person may not even come to the healthcare system. The prevalence of specific phobias in the United States is somewhere between 7 to 9%. That's millions of people. An even more concerning statistic is that less than 25% of those actually undergo treatment. Self-administered therapy may be the only forms of treatment those individuals will have, which again is upwards of 75%. Thus, the benefits of self-administered therapy include providing a better tool for homework between sessions with a therapist, allowing for another tool for therapy in areas that may not have a therapist, but they have patients been diagnosed with a disease within the healthcare system. And then three, helping those that may never undergo treatment by allowing them to get access to care from their own home using consumer products. That's what I have for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Have any questions, comments, please send them my way, either through LinkedIn or Twitter. Hope you have a great day.